Turn in our Bibles this week again to the book of Hebrews in the chapter 10. The book of Hebrews in the chapter 10. And last week we began what will be a five-message series in this chapter. And we looked last week at let us have a right view of God. And we're coming back to consider the second part of that series this morning. Hebrews in the chapter 10. And as we began last week then, we reminded ourselves that the most important thing in our lives is what we believe to be true about God. And remember we saw how that we believe, what we believe to be true about God affects then everything else in our lives. What we believe to be true about God affects what we say, what we do, and how we even make our choices day by day. And as we began last week, we sought to establish then the right foundation for what our view about God should be. And as we made our way down through the opening verses, the opening 18, first 18 verses of the chapter, we saw how that Jesus Christ was, of course, the expressed or manifested image of God. And in his life, we see a picture of God, Christ, of course, being one full of grace and truth. Last week, I encouraged you to look not only at the sacrifice of Christ and be thankful for the grace that is exhibited, the grace that is demonstrated there, but also, of course, to be that clear testimony of the truth that it was your sin, it was my sin that mandated that he should come and give of his life. And therefore, as believers, we should never just delight in his grace without acknowledging the truth that it was our sin that nailed him to the tree. And he must die if you and I are to know peace with God, even as is afforded through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he died and because we have come by faith to him, repenting of our sin, then we know that complete and full forgiveness as was recorded there in the verse 14. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And come to verse 17, their sins, those who have been perfected by him, their sins and iniquities, will I remember no more. And therefore it is true that as far as the east is from the west, so far, has Christ removed the burden of our sin, the guilt of our sin, and that which was owed to us rightfully for our sin. So far has he removed it from us. And therefore our understanding of God, our being able to formulate and articulate a right view is built upon that foundation that the finished work of Christ and all that it has accomplished on our behalf. But as we come to further reflect this morning, we must remember that what we believe to be true about God being the single most important thing in our lives, and therefore what we believe to be true about Him, and having acknowledged the truth of our belief in Him as we confess our sin and profess Christ as our, our Savior, that in itself is never the summation of all that we desire to know. That uh, is never the summation, not only of what we know, but what we profess, what we understand. Rather, it's simply the beginning. 
And therefore, it must be the desire of every Christian to grow in their knowledge, to grow in their understanding, two distinct truths. We must know about God, but we must also understand what God's Word teaches about Him and what He would have us to do in life and how He would have us to live here in life. And the only way we can ever do that is to spend time with Him. And so we come to the first of the let us's that are found for us in this chapter. We begin our reading at the verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word afresh to our hearts. And coming to consider this first let us that's found there for us in the verse 22, we have displayed here by the writer of the book of Hebrews a call to consecration. A call to consecration. Is it possible to know more about God? Is it possible to be more familiar with his character with his desires, with his way of working in this world, with his heart that beats with love for each one of us. I won't surprise you to note that in the course of ministry, I, of course, spend much time with those who have been recently bereaved. And spending time with families who have lost a loved one, you often hear the same thing expressed either by the family themselves or indeed by friends of the deceased. And it goes something like this. I wish that I had known them more. I wish that I had spent time to get to know them, to understand them, to appreciate them more. And that being, of course, something which is expressed at times of grief, times of separation, and times of loss, is a stark realization that many of us come to as those in life that we take for granted or those in life that we have brief acquaintance with pass on from this life to the other. But I believe it also to be true that as we come to consider the Word of God and this question of is it possible to know more of God that I submit to you this morning that the day that we see God the day that the believer enters into the heaven that God has prepared for those who know and love him, for the day that the believer beholds Christ in all of his glory, that it will be the expression of many a heart. I wish I had got to know him more. I wish that I had spent time here on earth learning more about him and gaining more in my knowledge and understanding of who he is and of how he would have me to live my life in this world. 
The truth of that regret is simply this. That it is never the fault of God that we do not know him. Rather, it is always the fault of the individual. And if you're here this morning and you in your own life identify a lack of knowledge and understanding of who God is, if in times of reflection and heart searching you have identified that weakness that prevails within the human heart so often, that of being separated from a conscious knowledge of the presence of God and of the reality of the hand of God moving and working in your life, then tenderly I submit to you this morning that that is the fault of no one else but yourself. For God has done everything that is necessary that we might enjoy unparalleled access to and uninterrupted fellowship with the God who created us, the Christ who saved us, and the one who desires for us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And here in this chapter, this 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the writer of this book seeks to point this out to us. For in verse 19, he clearly states that the thrust of his writing is to the brethren, is to the sisters, those who have come to express and confess that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who have repented of their sin and by faith accepted of the finished work that he has recounted here in the opening verses of the chapter 10. And he says in writing to the brethren, he's basing all that he's had to say already upon this understanding that we have come to the knowledge of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And thus having established the right foundation for fellowship, he seeks to exhort us all to enter into the very presence of God himself. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That, of course, conveys to us this idea of approaching unto God. And dear friend, as we gather together this morning, have you ever considered the truth of that exhortation? For the sacrifice of Christ means that we, that you and I, who once were afar off, as Paul rightly describes in the book of Ephesians, are now brought nigh by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, are now accepted in the sight of God because we are accepted in the beloved. Our position is in Christ. We who were afar off are brought nigh in Him and having then, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. He hath broken down the middle wall of partition that existed once between us. We who were born in sin and separated from a righteous and from a holy God because of that sin, and if it were not but for the finished work of Christ, and if it were not but for the drawing of the Spirit in that moment of conviction when we came as a sinner to Christ, and whenever He lifted the scales of our blinded eyes and helped us behold Christ in His fullness and helped us behold the finished work of Christ and what it would mean for us if we but repented of that sin and believed in Him alone for salvation, and then we would be forever separated. But Christ broke down that middle wall of partition. His Spirit brought us to the cross and we gained that understanding of what it would mean to be that new creation in Christ. And by faith we repented and confessed Him as our Savior. Then as we have known that invitation, we can now enter boldly into the presence of God. And mistake not this exhortation from the writer here, for he's not exhorting us to come arrogantly. 
He's not exhorting us to come proudly. He's not exhorting us to come brashly. But rather, he's exhorting us to come with complete confidence. I contrast that to the experience of the people of God in the past. And if we know anything about the book of Hebrews, we'll, of course, acknowledge that the writer of the Hebrews is speaking to those who are Jewish by birth and descent who have come to that knowledge of Christ. And that is the audience to whom he communicates these truths that are found in this book, first and foremost. Now, all things are written for our learning and have been preserved by God down through the generations so that today you and I can come to the Word of God and still learn from the Word of God that which is applicable to us. But the writer of the book of Hebrews is conveying all that he's speaking of here with the primary audience of the converted Jew in mind. And therefore, throughout the opening ten chapters up until this point, he has sought to relate to them the difference that Christ has made. The fact that he has abolished the law. The fact that he has abolished the practice of sacrifices. The fact that in Christ no longer is sacrifice required because he hath being forever the once-for-all sacrifice required for sin. And therefore, the common Jew can now approach unto God and can the one who in times past could never enter into the holiest of holies. But now they are able to approach through the veil, that which was, of course, the barrier to anyone approaching in the past. That opportunity to approach was only ever afforded to one of the tribe of Levi, of the specific family of Aaron in the tribe of Levi, and one who was rightly acknowledged and appointed to be the high priest over the children of Israel. And he only then could come also once a year on the day appointed by God to make that atonement and to offer that sacrifice for the sins of the people. But now in Christ, anyone can broach none daring to make them afraid. That which in times past, if you had approached unto, would have seen you instantly struck down, such was the jealousy with which the presence of God was guarded, but nevertheless in Christ you and I can boldly enter in. From the scripture record, we know, of course, that he who has permitted that, or who was permitted that access in times past, that high priest, did so with a certain fear, with a certain dread, with a certain nervousness that was evident in his approach. For we know that a rope was tied to his very ankle in case the sacrifice with which he was approached was not accepted by God, that he could be whipped out of there. Such was the nervousness, such was the fear with which high priests of the past, especially in the days of the backsliding of the children of Israel, approached this task of entering into the veil. But you and I can enter with boldness, with complete confidence that in Christ we can draw nigh onto the throne of our Creator. Every believer of every age, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every creed, of every color, from every nation, can approach at any time into the very presence of God himself. And we can come into that place which once filled the Jew with awe and dread, all because of what Christ has done for us. 
back up to verse 1 and we see, of course, as we began our study last week, the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereon to perfect. And here we were reminded that the adherence to the law could never grant that level of access to the nominal Jew because it was only ever a shadow. But Christ, with the blood that he shed, ushered in that new dispensation when every believer can, with complete confidence, enter in and bow with reverence, fear, and worship before the great God of heaven and earth. And in verse 20, he continues, of course, to expand the truth that he has begun to elaborate upon, and he describes it as being that new and that living way which he, Christ, hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And this access that we have, this access that you and I can with confidence enter into and avail of is that new way. It's not at all been something that has been known in days gone past, the generations of Jews up until this point, the generations of the people of God. This was not available to them. But rather, it's a new way that Christ has made. All because he accomplished the work that God had sent him to do. He fulfilled the law. But not only that, it's a living way. Now contrast that to everything that the Old Testament taught. And we saw that the high priest would enter in with blood of an animal that was slain. An animal that would never know life again. An animal that would never come to life again. But Christ entered into the veil and made that new and that living way because he died, but he rose again and lives in the power of an endless life. And his blood, the efficacy of that blood, atones for the sins of every generation until the day that he returns. Until the day that, as we've been noting even in the book of Revelation, the Holy of Holies is shut up, and no man can know what it is to approach unto God for mercy again. An old friend, God has accomplished in Christ a great work for the believer and it's this new way that he has made. It's this living way because he ever lives to make intercession for us and his blood ever atones for the sins of his people. God sent his son to fulfill the law, to pay the price for sin. And in doing so, he accomplished the miraculous. And that miraculous allows you and I the privilege of entering in such as was never known in Old Testament time. For Christ, as he made that new and that living way, entered in the veil. And God, in that moment, as he acknowledged the shed blood of the sinless, spotless sacrifice of his son's dear son's life, he manifested his acceptance in a divine way. For the Bible tells us that from top to bottom, an act that only could be done by God from top to bottom, that veil, that wall of separation, that curtain that was ever hanging as a continual remembrance that you could not approach, it was rent. And God, by that divine act, rendered it useless and allowed the opportunity for that same unparalleled access and for that uninterrupted fellowship that we've already identified. And therefore, coming to answer the question, can you, can I get to know God more? Of course we can. For you and I can approach unto him and spend as much or as little time as we desire 
in his presence. It's all because, of course, this newness of the covenant that he established in Christ. The old covenant being done away with, the new covenant that the scriptures speak of being found even in the work of Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, he tells us there, it's again the signifying work of that new covenant because we have a high priest over the house of God. And Christ is our great high priest and the truth be told, he is, of course, the only high priest that the believer has ever required and indeed will ever require. Come back to chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews and we see this elaborated upon. For this again correlates with this understanding of this way being new, of this covenant being new. Because the children of old, the children of God of old, the Israelites, knew what it was to have a succession of high priests. There was, of course, the, uh, the ever-continuing need for priests and then high priests subsequently to be replaced. For they that held such positions naturally died. In verse 22, it tells us, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. The people who held that office that had that responsibility, the men of generations past, remember, had only a defined life here on earth. But Christ is eternal. But this man, verse 24, Christ, because he continueth ever eternal, hath an unchangeable priesthood. There's no need to pass on that requirement or duty to another. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's un, or is unique. He's unlike any high priest that has ever held the position. Christ truly was the Paschal Lamb, but Christ also was the full embodiment of what God desired in the high priest, the one who shed that blood, the one who offered that sacrifice. The Bible tells us who needeth not daily as those high priests, those ones who, of course, existed in generations past, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. And here we're reminded that those who were high priests in generations past, they were not flawless, they were not faultless. Rather, they were there because God had chosen them to be there. That line that was established from Aaron right down through the generations of the Levites who would pass, that was established in the mind, the heart, and the plan of God. But it all led to Christ, the great embodiment, the great fulfillment of the office of the high priest. And he it is who is consecrated forevermore. And that's why as we come to chapter 10 and this first let us, we can rightly term it this call to consecration. Because as we acknowledge what Christ has done, as we acknowledge what God has permitted because of what Christ has done, as we know this new and this living way that is open to us because of what Christ has done, and as we go then into the holiest and we view Christ as we get to know God as we 
we are called to live a life which is consecrated to him and more like him in every way, then we too will rightly respond to this call of consecration. So as we come to consider it this morning, and as we uh, consider and reflect upon this approach unto God, as we have this desire, I trust, within all of our hearts to learn more about who he is and how he would have us to live, then let us respond to this call of consecration. Just as the writer of the Hebrews here exhorts us. And so as in our response, let us notice first of all the proximity. For the Bible tells us, let us draw near. And that defines to us just our right position, the right sight of God. For you and I have access. But we have a choice of how near to God we will get. And it has been said, well said, by those in generations past, but it stands true today. You are as close to God. I am as close to God as you desire to be, as I desire to be. For God has opened this way. That veil has been rent, the way has been made clear, and we know with confidence, acceptance in his sight, but the proximity of our nearness to God is always established by us. The invitation is always there. God it is who said, draw nigh unto me. And we know, of course, as Scripture notes to us, draw nigh unto God and He will draw nigh unto you. That is, the nearness of His presence will be known. The reality of His presence will be known. The enjoyment of His presence will be experienced. And thus, too, our knowledge and understanding of who He is will increase. But is it possible, of course, to enter in without ever drawing near? And many there be who have passed from this scene of time into the glories above and have realized that in their lives they have never got to know God more, that they too wish that they had spent time getting to know God and to learn more about Him and to understand more about Him. But nevertheless, all along, they only ever entered in, they never drew near. And so as we come together this morning, we must understand, we must acknowledge that so too in our lives it can be possible that we too can draw, or we too can enter in without ever drawing near. That's why we sang this morning there, nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart. Draw me, my Savior, so precious thy heart. Fold me, oh, fold me close to thy breast. Shelter me safe in that haven of rest. Nearer, still nearer, nothing I bring, not as an offering to Jesus my King, only my sinful, now contrite heart. Grant me thy cleansing, thy blood doth impart. Do you appreciate the truth that it is a reality in all of our lives? No matter how long we've been saved, no matter how short we've been saved, but it is a reality that we can enter in without ever drawing near. Not only do we have the proximity, but we have the testimony. The Bible goes on to say, let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart. As God beholds our heart, does he establish an understanding that our heart is true before him? 
As God looks within us, each one of us, not seeing what we put on for others on the outside, but knowing directly the thoughts and the intents and the motives of our heart, knowing the things that we have said, knowing the things that we have done, does God identify a true heart in us? The heart is, of course, the seat of emotions. And what is in our heart is manifested in all our reactions and in all our actions. I believe that's why in Proverbs we have that appeal that is given, give me thy heart. Give me thine heart. For God knows that out of the heart, he said it clearly in his word, proceeds all the issues of life. And the Bible has much to say about the heart. In fact, if you were to study the theme of the heart in Scripture, you'd find over 800 direct references to the heart, and every single one of them is connected to either an emotion, an action, or a reaction. For God is seeking to convey to us the truth that what is in our heart, and what is the rightful condition of our heart, not that which we let on it to be, but what is the rightful condition of our heart, does truly affect everything that we do, everything that we say. In 1 Kings, in the verse, or chapter 11, the verse 4, the Bible notes that Solomon had an idolatrous heart. His heart was given over to many other gods. And surely that is a problem that is still existent, evident, and resplendent in our generation. For whilst there may not be an idol in the corner, whilst there may not be a shrine that is found within our homes, there are those things there are those people who distract our heart, who take the attention and the affection of our heart, which should only ever belong to God. But nevertheless, there are things of time which sadly crowd in and find that seat of prominence within our heart. Does God look at us this morning? Does God look at you? Does he look at me and see an idolatrous heart, just as was found in Solomon? Or perhaps it's true that God looks at you or me this morning and sees a divided heart. One which sometimes serves God's well, but on the other times simply serves one's own self or chases after the schemes and trends of time. That's given to us in the book of Hosea in the chapter 10 and the verse 2. They had a divided heart, the nation of Judah, the people of Israel. They, of course, served God well during seasons of their lives. They looked to him whenever trouble came. They looked to him whenever the enemy threatened. But whenever things were calm, whenever things were settled, they simply did that which was right in their own eyes. How true it is that still today, to this very day, existent within our lives, existent within our world, are those who have that divided heart. But nevertheless, the word of Scripture is simply this, choose you this day whom you will serve. Perhaps God looks at our heart this morning and sees a convicted heart, one which knows the stirring of his spirit within, one who has sat under the preaching of his word or indeed has in their own time and their own personal devotions read that which has pricked at the heart. And they have known the finger of God press heavily upon them. It's given to us, of course, in the book of Acts, in the chapter 2, in the verse 37, for as Peter preached the day of Pentecost, they were pricked in their hearts, the word of God records. 
It also is given to us in Psalm 73 in verse 21 when it talks about the pricked heart. How that one hears the word of God, understands the tug of God, but yet in that moment still has that decision to make to obey God or to turn their back on all that God is speaking to them to do. Or perhaps this morning as you come, you have come in that rightful way. You have come with an open heart. One whom the Lord has prepared just as he did in the life of Lydia. In the book of Acts, in the chapter 16, in the verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. It's very easy to have a closed heart, to have a closed mind, to have a closed will. Only God can truly open the heart. And I pray that even as you prepared to come here this morning, that you ask for that open heart, that heart that was ready to receive the word of God, that heart that was ready to act on all that you did receive from the word of God. Oh, let it be that we are people of an open heart. People who are ready, willing, and eager to hear all that God would say unto us. We could look this morning at the broken heart, the contrite heart. We could look this morning at the fixed heart. We could look at the faithful heart. The time doesn't allow us Nevertheless, we want to remark last of all upon the full heart. For that too, I believe, should be the expression of each of our hearts and the reality of the condition of each of our hearts as we come here this morning. Not only should our hearts be open, but our hearts should be full. Full because of all that Christ has done for us. I believe that is why the writer of the Hebrews spends so much time getting to this point in chapter 10. Reminding us all of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Reminding us all of what God has accomplished in Christ. And what God has fulfilled in that great plan of redemption. As Christ came a once for all sacrifice for our sin. And therefore as we draw near to God with that true heart. It's a heart that is full. Why is it a heart that is full? Well it's a, it's a heart that is full because they have a joy of no regret. A true believer will never regret the day that they accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have known what it is to enter into the fullness of the joy of his salvation and no circumstance and no event in life will ever change the joy that they experience in Christ. It's a joy of no regret. But a full heart is also the joy of aspect. For they know as they approach unto God that they are in Christ. That's their position. They were afar off. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. But now they're alive in Christ. They've been brought near. And they're in Christ. It's the joy of aspect. And no man shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. But a full heart not only has a joy of no regret and a joy of aspect, but it is a joy of prospect. For he shall come again and receive us unto himself. That where he is, there we may be also. And so this morning as we come, as we draw near, is our heart true? Is our heart full? Is our heart open? I pray to God that it is. My time is gone already this morning, very quickly passed, but... 
let us note thirdly not only the proximity, let us not only note the testimony, but let us also note the purity. The Bible tells us there, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That speaks of that which was within the motives, the thoughts, and the intents of the heart, that which is truly only ever known to God, that which you and I cannot identify nor perceive in each other rightfully. But let us draw near with that which has been cleansed by his precious blood. But also it speaks of that outwardly has our hands received of the emblems this morning, having partaken of the things of the world in the week that has passed. Has, we, has our hands and has our lips received of that which testifies of the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, having spoken that which is ill or evil of other brethren and sisters in Christ? Have we used our lips or our tongue for lying or speaking vanity, but yet came here this morning and accepted of that which speaks of his forever sacrifice? Oh, may it be that our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Let it be that our bodies are washed with pure water, and that is only ever accomplished as you and I know what it is to be in the Word, to be people of the Word. People who delight to hear and to do the word of God. People who set aside that time that is necessary to be in his word. Wash me with water and I shall be clean. And what is it? The water of his word that accomplishes the cleansing that is required that we can with confidence, assurance, and in that right manner approach unto him. Tell me, have you been in the word this morning? Have you been in the Word during those times that we have spent separate one from another during the days of lockdown? Have you been a person of the Word? Have you set aside the time from the cares of this world and from the routine of time to come and to fellowship with other brethren and sisters at the, at the appointed time around the Word of God? Have you set aside that time in your own life to draw near personally to God and to be in his word? Or is yours a testimony of playing catch-up? Or perhaps even greater than that, a testimony of neglect. Catch-up will never replace being in the word at the appointed time. Neglect will never cleanse the body or the mind the way that God requires and so we come and we say, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Father, we praise thee and we thank thee for all that thy word teaches us this morning. And we pray that as we enter in, that we may do so with that true heart one that is full, one that is uh, even open and receptive to all that thou dost have for us, one which delights to hear and to do all that thy word communicates to us. So have thine own way and work within us to the glory of thy name and let us go from here a people who know much blessing and who bless the lives of others. For us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.